Welcome to the School of Purpose podcast. In each episode, we explore purpose in life, what it is, how it affects people, and most of all, how to have more of it. My name is Bradley Wright, and I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Connecticut, where I study purpose and well-being. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another episode of the School of Purpose podcast. Today's guest is somebody who's actually pretty hard for me to introduce. It's because she does so many interesting things. Her name is Sally Nash, and she comes to us from the United Kingdom. She is a researcher. She's an Anglican priest. She's a theological educator. She's an author. She's an expert in spiritual health. She works with people with coaching and spiritual health, and she is an expert in shame. And she also, I think, is a chaplain and program coordinator and does other things. So you can see why, you know, when when we were talking before this started, my first question was, how do I introduce you? So I'm really interested in her approach to things. And on her website, her tagline is helping you make a bigger difference in your world. That really caught my eye. And the fact that she has both a a spiritual approach, an academic approach, and also a coaching approach makes me think that there's interesting things here for us to learn from. So the reason why I wanted her to have her on this show was to get her perspective on how we make a bigger difference in our world, especially from a spiritual perspective, and then maybe how shame plays into that. Because as I engage this issue in my own life and as I talk to other people about it, I'm, I'm struck by how often shame comes up as we try to do what's right and good in the world. So thank you for coming to the show, Sally. Uh, it's much appreciated. Welcome. Thank you. Um, it's really great to be here. I always enjoy the opportunity to talk about um, some of the areas of interest for me. Wonderful. Well, to start off with, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? I'm, I've spent most of my life in some sort of educational type roles. Um, I can remember even as a child, I loved playing teachers and <laughs> having a little desk at home and um, things like that. So I've always had a passion for helping people learn, facilitating sort of in educational concepts. If I think about sort of what I understand my core purpose to be, it's it's around things like helping people to fulfill their potential. It's the, as you said, my scrap line on my website, helping people make a bigger difference in their world. And if I use biblical language, I'd um, start um, quoting from Ephesians and talking about equipping the saints for works of service. So I'm all about really helping people to become um, a better version of themselves and to find their vocation, what they uniquely can give to the world. So I love how you just casually and easily brought in Ephesians into a description of what you want. Mm. Just the way you said that, um, and I'm familiar with that verse, but the Mm. way you, you linked it in to sort of kind of secular psychological language about similar things makes me wonder if there, there might be more connections between how like a psychological approach to purpose and meaning and a a spiritual approach, how they might connect. So when you work with people, actually, first let me ask a background question. Why did you go more into being a practitioner than a researcher? Because you could have done both and you do both, but what's your thinking in terms of which you prefer or why you choose one or the other? And I ask that as somebody who is, you know, mostly a researcher, but moving a little bit into the practitioner side. So I'm very interested in, in your thinking about that. A great question. I have always been a practitioner, 
and I became a practitioner who taught others into an academic world working in universities, which is when I needed to become a, a researcher. So I did, um, I've done two doctorates at different times, <laughs> but they're, they're both very practice-based. Um, and I don't think I've published anything that isn't practice-oriented. I've probably published mm, 10 or so um, books or booklets, but they're all, they're all practice-oriented. So I, I did a, a doctorate looking at um, long-term incarnational urban youth work because I wanted to see how we could better work with young people in, a, in sort of urban contexts. And then I did a, um, my PhDs on shame in the church, which I did when I was um, claiming to be a priest because I get very distressed when I see the church shaming people for things they shouldn't be shamed over. Um, Lewis Mees talks about the shame you don't deserve. That was all triggered by an experience I had when I was seven or eight. So I, I've sort of long been interested in shame. Well, obviously, when I was seven or eight, I couldn't, I couldn't have called it um, shame. But my all my researcher world is about helping um, make practice more effective or better or more insightful or more evidence-based or whatever. So, yeah, I, all my research is, is practitioner-focused. I value the interface between research and practice. And being a researcher myself, the story I've always heard is do research and then other people will learn from it and it will inform their practice. And that's one way of thinking about it. Now I'm starting to think, oh, I want to do research and then convert it into practice myself because that helps me to understand the research. Also, it's a nice validity check in that really think if I really understand something, I should be able to change it. And if I can't change it, maybe I don't understand it. So um, I had a uh, PhD advisor who one of his students before me studied how people bet on horse racing and he used it as a, a test on decision making. And so my advisor mm. said, for your dissertation defense, let's go down to the track. If you can win money, I'll give you a PhD because if you understand it, you should be able to you know, navigate it successfully. Brilliant. And uh, so, so really, I don't think they actually did that. I think it was a quip. But uh, I really appreciate the interface between faith and practice. What are some of the ways that going from practice to research has informed what you do, has given you a, a different understanding in terms of what you do? A, a couple of things. Um, in my early research with youth workers, we, we had conversations around um, me. It took something like seven to ten years to sort of embed yourself in the community and be really accepted and have those sort of relationships um, where you were making a difference. So the importance of being long-term, I think, partly came out of that research. So I've been at my current church nine years. We've lived in this house here for 19 years. I also, um, again, bringing in this, the spirit I, I mentioned, um, Benedictines have a have a sort of vow of stability, um, which means sort of staying in the same place. And I've always sort of felt that I should stay somewhere unless it's really crystal clear that it's the right time to move on. So my default is to stay rather than my default want to be keep moving on. Before I um, became self-employed, I'd, I'd worked at the same place for 20 years. So I, 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 so one of the things I've learned about research is actually you can make more of a difference if you're around long term enough for people to have those sorts of relationships with you, where you're um, you're trusted, and in a sense you 
prove yourself to people who might know may not necessarily trust very easily. So that's um, that's one way I think I've learned um, from my research about how I practice myself. So a valve stability, that's fascinating. Mm. And I've never thought of this. But when people talk, when I hear people talk about purpose, and when I think about it myself, there's an, an assumption of change. Mm. I'm doing one thing, but to be fulfilled, I need to do something else. And I have to do something else. I have to be with somebody else. I have to live somewhere else. I have to drive something else. I don't know, whatever. But you're talking about staying in the same place as being important in life, as having its own values. Mm. How would you link that to, you know, making a difference in the world or, or maybe more abstractly finding meaning and purpose? I would, I would find meaning and purpose through um, being deeply rooted somewhere. So my, my meaning making is probably better done in community than individually. I think one of the dilemmas of some of our um, contemporary approaches to things is, is very individualistic. So I want to make meaning in community. So, for example, um, after church on Sunday, we sit down and sort of talk about um, what we think God is saying in the whatever, but through the sermon, through the liturgy. And so we start to talk about sanctuary because um, we've been exploring the idea that when the Virgin Mary went to see her cousin Elizabeth, having been told that she was going, she was going to bear Jesus, essentially seeking sanctuary. Um, with Elizabeth because being an unmarried mother was very shaming in that culture. So we started to talk about sanctuary and how church can be more of a sanctuary for people and how we communicate that we're a place of sanctuary, that if you come to us, we won't shame you in the way that Elizabeth didn't shame Mary. So for me, the meaning making and purpose is better done in community and it's somehow easier to do with, with, with if there are some people who've had long-term relationships and share a sense of history and share a sense of story. So I think that's that's one of the ways in which that's that's it, that's important to me and how that connects with my um, sense of purpose. Also, I think I've just got this underpinning sense that I'm there to help people fill their potential. And you see that more if you stick around more. You see people's journey. So, you know, in a sense, you you can carry on having some of that investment with people if you're around for longer or you're, you're accessible to them for longer. And geographical relocation, I think, is one of the things that disrupts it. I appreciate, you know, we're talking thousands of miles apart and it's still, um, you know, one can be in contact in different sorts of ways, but sometimes the physical presence makes a big difference. I've noticed with a few meetings post end of Zoom meetings that my face-to-face meetings can last twice as long as they would have done had they been on Zoom because you have that extra conversation that when you're on Zoom, it, it feels so much more functional. Interesting. So, yeah, it would be, we could take this down the road of, you know, the effects of, of the pandemic and how it's disrupted mm-hmm. community or face-to-face interactions. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, imp- very important about living purposefully in a community and the role of community in living purposefully. As Mm. I've worked with people and helping them find purpose, and it's been kind of on an ad hoc basis, I've noticed that it works best when they take my seminar or talk to me with with a couple people they know. So it's like a small group rather than just an individual because they speak into each other's lives and they say, oh, no, you're not this kind of person, you're this kind of person, or oh, you've always liked that, or... 
you know, there's a support or something like that. So I, I see the value of it. I've only thought it in terms of, of it in terms of situationally, not long-term residentially. But mm. what you say makes a lot of sense. Now let's let's turn to spirituality in this issue. One of the things I've noticed is that when people start engaging purpose and meaning in their lives, if mm. they're spiritual people, they do it spiritually. If they're not spiritual people, they don't need to do it spiritually. Sometimes, though, I see people who are less spiritual become more spiritual as they do it. I don't know that I've seen anyone who is more spiritual become less spiritual. So it's uh, the pursuit of purpose and meaning often makes people more spiritual, but it doesn't need it doesn't have to. Mm. What's your thought in the general at the general level of how spirituality and pursuing purpose and meaning uh, come together? Um, I suppose for me, um, I would argue um, that we are all spiritual beings, um, that we all do have a, a spirituality. We just may not necessarily use those words or be aware of it. And for me, um, my spirituality is what helps me answer the questions around purpose. What's my purpose and how do I make meaning out of some of these things? I think the other thing about spirituality for me is that sort of that sense of connectedness as well. So when I talk um, when I talk about spiritual health, I talk about my connectedness to to myself, to others, to some sense of transcendent other. Um, for me, and that would that would be the Christian God, but also then the environment, nature, and my spirituality um, roots me in the real world with connections with. Um, real people and you know the environment and nature and everything so so for me spirituality is what underpins my whole sense of purpose um and meaning because for me my spirituality is the narrative that i use to help me make decisions to help me make choices and to understand um who i am i appreciate the wide breadth of function that you point out with spirituality, that it connects you to yourself, to others, to God, to nature, it roots you in the world, it answers big questions. I think sometimes people confuse spirituality and religion. I value yeah. both greatly, but yeah. they're not the same thing. And a sense of spirituality in, comes up with so many different areas of life. And in fact, the, the, the different connections you talked about come up with purpose too. Yeah. Uh, when people, when researchers write about purpose, they'll talk about it being in different domains. What you do for a living, how you connect with others, how you connect with yourself, how you connect with God, what you do in the world. I mean, it, mm. if you'd substituted purpose for spirituality and what you just said, I could yeah. find a couple people written about the same thing about purpose. Yeah. So, so I appreciate that yeah. broad approach. How do you talk about this with people who define themselves as not being spiritual? Or do you work with such people? I think that people who don't define themselves as being spiritual probably self-select not to work with me because I um, I present what I do in um, in terms of, of, of concepts like spiritual health and if you read my biography you'll see things like theological education and, and things like that if you look if you go on my Amazon author page you'll see most of my books are around ministry or youth ministry or chaplaincy or all different sorts of things. I think I, I don't really work with people who don't see themselves as spiritual because they self-select 
um, out of any engagement with me, um, really. That makes sense. So let's turn to spiritual health. That's an interesting concept. How would you identify or even measure somebody's level of spiritual health? So when you sit down with a client or you start working with somebody, mm-hmm. in your mind, you're probably wanting to assess, well, how healthy are they spiritually? What are some of the, the indicators that you look for with that? Um, well, I, I use that fourfold framework I just spoke to you about in terms of our relationship with self, others, transcendence, and environment. And I, being be a, be a bit of an academic as well, I use um, someone called John Fisher's approach to spiritual health. And one of the ways that I, I measure it is looking at the sort of the, the way he breaks down those different sorts of um, elements of spiritual health. And one of the one of the things I do um, in some of my initial work is get people to sort of look at themselves in relation to some of the different sorts of criteria and look at where they are and where and, and where they want to be. So, you know, in, in terms of sort of encouraging people to reflect on how self-aware are they do, do that. Uh, one of the really interesting ones for discussion is to what extent do they have a sense of inner peace? Because that's, I think, a, a really important dimension of your, your spiritual health. And, you know, have some really fascinating conversations about um, inner peace and why and how you have it, get it, and why you've lost it, and what you might do to to restore it. So, so I like that you think very. There's a lot of nuances and complexity to think to how you think of spiritual health. There's a lot of parts to it, yeah. but you identify one key indicator: inner peace. And when yeah. you say that, it's like, yeah, if you're going to ask one person a person one question about their spiritual health, inner mm. peace is probably a pretty good one. Yeah. When people don't have a sense of inner peace, um, mm. what do you find they need to do to reclaim it or to find it for the first time? I end up working with people who, one of the big ones is loss and grief. They've lost their inner, inner peace because they've experienced some sort of significant loss or grief. Might be bereavement, but, you know, which, which obviously um, can do that for you. But in a sense, it, it's... Um, it's often something that's distorted their trust or their um, their understanding of themselves. So um, generally, when I'm working with people, um, what they need for to restore their inner peace is to process whatever it is that's come into their lives and disrupted it. And sometimes that might might be, I think you might need to go and see a therapist. For others, it might be you need to establish some good spiritual rhythms in your life get yourself back on an equilibrium and appreciate that we've lost our long-term processes and, you know, you won't be back to whatever normal is for you tomorrow. And understanding some of the ways um, grief and loss work, I think if you understand what's happening to you, um, that can be helpful in, in restoring some of your inner peace. So for somebody, I would look at sort of loss theory, um, Grief theory, some of those things. I'm probably not using quite the word word theory, but um, we've got a couple of diagrams. Which I don't know if you've ever seen the world ball of grief, um, but you know, get people to look visually and sort of locate where they are, and sort of talk about other places, and, and just really understanding that it tends not to be linear. It's very sort of up and down, and round and round, and it, it can be quite. You, know, you think everything's okay, and then perhaps a song comes on the radio, or someone says something untoward. And it it goes again. But I think understanding where you're at and understanding um, some of the processes can go towards um, restoring inner peace. But I also think that inner peace, sometimes some spiritual practices can help. So, you know, 
prayer, meditation, sort of some something that sort of grounds and roots you. But, but you know, but somebody they, they do need to go and talk about um, their lack of peace or their anxiety or whatever with someone um, who is qualified and trained to do that. That makes sense. And it sounds like it's something to be very beneficial for the people you work mm-hmm. with. In terms of grief, one of the places I've encountered it in talking to people about purpose and meaning is a place where I didn't expect to find it, but when I did, I realized, oh, I have it myself. And that mm-hmm. is sort of a sense of grief for what could have been in my life. And yes. I find this more with people, you know, post 40, maybe post 50. So, yeah. for example, the first time I, I had kind of a find your purpose seminar, which I didn't really know what I was doing, but I had lots of enthusiasm. We started mm-hmm. talking about these things, and a woman had to leave the room, and she just went in the other room and started sobbing. I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. I'm really bad at this. I'm making people cry. But when I talked to her afterward, she said that she was basically, in, in the language we're using now, grieving for what she could have been, grieving for lost yeah. opportunities. Is that something that you see come up in, in your practice? Definitely, yes. Yeah, I mainly work with women. I don't exclusively work with women, but I mainly work with women. And I'm sometimes working with women sort of um, when the children are grown up enough to for them to realise actually it's about, it, it, it's me time. And certainly meant that their life has been on hold for perhaps too many years. Some of it depends on what tradition you're brought up in, you know, your, your, your own sort of cultural background, your, your own socialisation will partly depend on what sort of roles and things that you, you've in, in, inhabited. But, um, you know, the, the, the choices that you make and the opportunities that you've missed out on, um, absolutely. I think it's... Um, I one of the things I, I often talk about is trying to avoid the if onlys and the regrets. So what I think the most awful things is if only I had. So how can you live in such a way that there aren't if onlys? Can you give something a try or you know, can, can what what can you do to try to minimize the number of if onlys um, that you face because you, you don't want to get to 40, 50, 60 thinking if only I'd have you know gone to college or if only I'd have said yes to that person who asked me to marry them, or if only I'd um, practiced more, then I might have achieved something in the sport that I love, or the, you know, being able to do something else. So I think that's a big cause of grief, and it's a, and, and going back to the inner peace, I think it's a big cause of a lack of inner peace is when you think you've made unwise choices and, and you regret them. I freaking love the phrase, if onlys. I've never heard it used as a noun like that before. And I'm ready to cry just saying it. It's like, mm. and what I like about that with regret, I like that phrase better than regrets because that's how I experience it. I don't think, oh, I regret having done something. I think, yeah. oh, if only I had done something or if only I had not done something. So it's, mm. a, it's a, a very pithy phrase. I like that. So, so with if onlys, it seems like it goes both backwards and forward that we have to deal with our if-onlys in the past, but we also want to live so that we have fewer if-onlys in the future. Yeah. How do you help people to do that? If-onlys in the future, it's exploring attitudes to courage and risk. If-onlys are often about courage, and that, you know, giving something a shot, having a go at something, you know, d- doing something, you know, and perhaps doing it in small incre- incremental little bits. So, so for me, the, the 
CF owners are trying to help people become bolder. The ones in the past were back to how do you process some of those things. I think past ones are tricky, um, but one of the things that I think is unhelpful is trying to get to the underlying pattern of thought or behaviour mindset, one, you know, the sort of phrase often used at the moment, that meant you didn't go down that path. What was it about your situation, your personality that, that stopped you doing that back then and helping people really grow in self-awareness so that they can have that conversation with themselves if another opportunity presents itself and sort of have a bit of a dialogue. Also, I think um, I would probably recommend um, for some people sort of coaching or mentoring spiritual accompanying if you're a Christian so that you have got someone to talk those things through with because I think sometimes talking it through with someone else can just make that um, that bit of a difference. For some people, they think as they talk, so it enables them to reflect a little bit better. And sometimes it's just not the right, it's not the best thing to talk about, to talk with people you're close to or people you love who love you, because sometimes they'll have their own agendas for you. And so that's why I think sort of a coaching, spiritual director, spiritual company, a mentor or someone, it's good to have that person who has your best interests and, and isn't bogged down by their own expectations or hopes for you or you know, the, the impact it will have on them if you make, make this particular choice. The idea that people who are really close to us might not encourage us to, to be brave and courageous because it affects them so much is very mm. wise. Mm. I, and I've experienced it at the, at the other end where with my kids, you know, here I'm somebody who talks about purpose all the time, but with my kids, mm. when they want to do something that's disruptive in their life, but it's purposeful, my first instinct is like, no, don't do that. So my mm. oldest son quit a great job to start his own business. Mm. And my first five reactions was like, no, you do not quit great jobs. It's like, there's one rule in the universe and that's it. You do not quit great jobs. And, you know, it, it'll make me worry. I want him to be financially secure, all this stuff. But yet that's not what he wanted. That's not what made him happy. I didn't say anything because, you know, I had, I had the filter in place of like, stop, you know, don't, don't tell him not to do that. But uh, that's, that's very real. And so how... So what you're saying is having somebody close enough that they know what's going on in your life. You're not just talking to people on the bus. Yeah. But not somebody who has a, a vested stake in what you're talking about so that they have to process it, how it affects them as well as others. Mm. Uh, the other. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, I love that you link avoiding regrets to risk and courage. That, that was the first mm. thing you said. I thought yeah. you would, if I had to answer that, I would have thought discernment. You know, like be clear yeah. on what matters to you. But my biggest if-onlys were things where I knew I wanted to do it. Yeah. I just didn't do it. I didn't have the, the I didn't take the risk. I didn't, I didn't have the courage. Um, so there are many examples. In college, I knew that I wanted to take a semester abroad and study in India. I thought that'd be fabulous. But I kept on coming up for reasons not to do it. And ultimately, it was just too disruptive. It's too far away. I thought it'd be too disruptive for my friends and family and my relationships with other people in college. Mm. In retrospect, it would have been just fine if I had disappeared for 20 weeks. I could have come back and been the same person in the same place. And I've always regretted that. And, and, and that's the language I use is, if only mm. I had done that, you know, I would have had X, Y, and Z in my life. Uh, so that's very powerful. I, I like that. Um, I don't know if I like it enough to have it tattooed. I don't know if I want to have it if only, <laughs> you know, on, on my arm. 
but maybe if only you know with a strike through, maybe, maybe that mm. that's the tattoo. Okay, so let's talk about shame. Mm. Something that I've observed as people talk about purpose is that it seems to bring up a lot of shame really fast. Mm. So last night I um I, I led a seminar for a group of undergraduates about finding purpose, and mm. at one point I said, okay, I, I had them identify some possible dreams for the future. And I said, I want you to share this with other people, you know, the ones that you're comfortable sharing. And you might as well have thought that I had said, okay, we're all going to strip down to our underwear and run around campus yelling and waving or something yeah. just, you know, beyond possibility. And it was shame. It's, it's almost mm -hmm. like this small thing, this thing that's, that is a small yearning in me, that's, but is deep and it's powerful and it's just... There's almost a shyness about it. And if I share this with others that, that um, like, I'll be ashamed at how they react or bring it to the surface or, or something like that. Is that something that you've encountered? And if so, could you give us insight into why it works that way? Um, the literature suggests that shame always has an audience. So when you feel shame, there is always an audience. Sometimes that shame is um, just your ideal self. And um, shame is about who we are, whereas guilt is about what we've done. So if I put something out there and you don't have the control to moderate your verbal expression, your facial expression, I will feel, I'm likely to feel shame because what you're actually doing is you're rejecting me or my ideas. So you're, you're, you're in a sense, dismissing who I am potentially so I'm going to feel shame so um, it can work both ways in the sort of scenario you talk it can be a um, why on earth is that all you want to do how are your ambitions so tiny you know um, in, in the current culture um, if someone said well for example I want to get um, married and have kids they'll say that to one person and they might think they say that to someone else and they'll think how narrow is that you know we're in the 21st century you know, you need to get, get a real life. Uh, but you would feel shame. You would feel that there was something wrong in who you are. So I think I think that that's the that's why people feel shame because they they don't know what reaction they're going to get from whoever they talk to. So they may not even if you know someone quite well. If you share your some of your deepest in in those sort of longings and desires, but they can either be things that people think that, you know, you'll never accomplish that or why do you only want to accomplish so little? It, you know, it works almost across the, across the spectrum and you feel um, you feel shame because people are um, dismissing who you are. But in my experience, when I do talk about these deep desires and dreams, mm. usually the person says, oh, that's cool, do it. Mm. And that I, maybe I'm projecting onto them the dis, um the dismissiveness. Mm. So what is your advice then to people when they, in this situation, is it don't tell other people about your dreams and what's really important? Is it be careful who you talk about or just it, get it, used to talking about it? it? it, it be, be careful who you talk to. Okay. Because you don't know what you're triggering in someone else. So when you're talking to peers, you don't know what you might be triggering, what you might be triggering in them. So, you know, I think, I think, and there's just always the, the thing about failure. What if I share this with you and you meet me in five or ten years' time and I'm, you know, not doing any of this and I'm, you know, I've never managed to get a job because of the pandemic or not got the sort of job that I want. I'm, you know, 
over here and say, um, you know, working in a supermarket or something. So I think there's there's that element well. But, it, that, but then it also comes back to um, to what extent have you as the as the teacher created a safe enough environment for people to be able to speak freely and safely and know that it's fine to fail. Okay. So if you've grown up in that sort of context, but then I think it's easier and you know that sometimes you fail and and, and you might know that, you know, what I want to do now I'm 21, two years time, it could be something something very different. So part of it is what's the culture you're in and what's the culture created by whoever it is that's responsible for that environment. Okay, so there's both, um, shame is rooted in both a fear of how the person will react at the moment, but mm. also projecting forward fear about how they might react, even if they don't show it, if things don't go well for us, you know, if, if, we don't, if we're not yeah. able to sort of follow and, and, through. And, and how, how we will feel, I think, if it doesn't yeah. go well for us as well. That makes sense. Do you think it's healthy for people then to talk about their dreams and their you know, passions and things like that with the right other people? Oh, with the right other people, absolutely. How do you know what you want to do if you don't explore them? And, and for some, um, some people need one. Um, I was on a training course with doctor supervisors yesterday and we were talking about what metaphor do you like as a, as a supervisor. So I said one of my favourite metaphors is a cheerleader. Um, <laughs> some people, uh, I would hate to be a cheerleader in, in, in any sort of real life. Um, I quite like um, NFL, NFL matches and things. So, and I was never the cheerleader um, type when I was younger, but just that metaphor of someone to cheer you on. And I think you do need to share your bit because you need someone to say to you, you can do that. I can see you've got that. You know, you, you know, you're, I can see your potential. I can see you would flourish in that environment. And I think, I think we need that far more than we need the squashing bit. So you have to be really careful who you talk to because otherwise you could be squashed. And then you're, you know, 10 years time, you'll have your phonies of, you know, that, that was my dream, but it got squashed out of me. And I've never had that person who, who listened, affirmed and accepted and said, go for it. I'm with you. You know, I'll, I'll journey with you. I love the, the, your use of the word squash because that's mm. how it can feel. When I've done this, and I'm sure I've squashed plenty of other people, uh, when I share something that's really deep and important to me, a dream or a, uh, something that I, I, I feel called to do, if I haven't mm -hmm. talked about it much, then any little negativity could squash it. So it's almost like a seedling that just comes out of the ground and gets stepped on and it's dead. Whereas yeah. if it has a chance to grow and become a big thing, then... Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody steps on it, I, it, it annoys me, but, you know, I'll be okay. Uh, mm. So that's very valuable. And also, I think you've answered for me a, kind of a, a puzzling observation I've had, and that is when I've done any kind of training about purpose and meaning, after I'll do a, an assessment saying, you know, basically what worked well, what could be improved, and any other comments. And mm. the comment I get most often that people appreciate isn't what I expect it to be. What I expect mm. it to be will be, I appreciated all the uh, the organization of it. I appreciated the the theories, um, basically the cognitive stuff that I put so much yeah. work into, or yeah. maybe the presentational style, friendly, fun, enthusiastic, or whatever. No, yeah. it's you've created a space for me to engage these things. It's like you've made yeah. a place where I feel safe to do this. And I've always mm. thought, well, that's odd because you could just do it anytime. But what you're saying is that somehow in this space, 
we're creating a, a like a little mini culture of what you want is important and we support you for it and we're on your side. So it's okay to sort of delve into. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, um, have you read much Parker J. Palmer? No, um, I haven't. I've, okay. Um, some of my educational philosophy probably comes from um, him in part, in part. So he's, one of his most well-known books um, is called Courage to Teach. Um, he's a, an American Quaker by background. Uh, and I just love that phrase, courage to teach. And he talks about how we need to be courageous to teach and um, about qualities. And he talks about the sort of space that we create. And I think ever since I've, I've read about that, I've been very aware that, the, like you just said, the most important thing I can do is create a space for people to learn and flourish in. And that's probably far more important than, as you just said, um, some of the actual content of what I teach. Interesting. So my first thought is, wow, I sure spent a lot of time getting a PhD and I maybe didn't need to. But I'm sure I'll find a use for all that knowledge rattling around in my head. And uh, and I'm encouraged by the fact that you uh, have done so much postgraduate work yourself. What are ways that you can create space for others to find purpose, to find meaning? You've already alluded to some of them, but if you were to train somebody in how to create space, what would you tell them to do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, at one end, there's the trying to make the physical space conducive. So I think physical space is important. There's the trying to create a sense of belonging and welcome. Um, and uh, as I was saying, uh, and, and, and safety. If you can create an environment in which people feel safe, and I think I try to create environments in which people feel safe by trying to be, and, 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 and I won't say that I'm necessarily very good at it, but in trying to be um, ex accepting, inclusive, sort of valuing, um, using my shame language, honouring. So if you sort of see shame and honour as two sort of slice of things, you know, how do I, um, how do I honour people? How do I look? And again, it's probably not my greatest asset, but how do I demonstrate how pleased I am to see people? How can I sense that? Try to, if I use almost, I want to use the phrase if I was in a, in a Christian context, how do I communicate God's delight in this unique person of dignity and worth before me? So how do I mediate that that that, that sense of we are um, unique people created in the image of God and we should be treated with dignity and worth? Um, so how do I, how do I, do that and how do I create that sort of space where everyone can be fully present, people are, are listening and people feel that they can put things out there. The other thing that I think is important now is the whole thing about um, vulnerability. I think if I demonstrate some vulnerability then, then it helps people also be vulnerable. So in a sense, sort of co-creation of whatever it is you're doing. Um, I will always say that I, I would... Um, we co-create learning. I learn as much from people as I facilitate learning for as I might hope they learn from me. And then the, the you know the Rogerian unconditional positive regard is really what I'm trying to is what I'm trying to communicate. That's wonderful. It's such a soft skill creating a mm -hmm. a space, creating the the emotional creating the emotional perceptions in the other person that they can act a certain way. It, mm -hmm. it, that doesn't fit into a formula for me of you know, do X, Y, and Z, and you get it. So I appreciate your ability to uh, explain it. And 
some of the nuance invol- nuances involved that it involves the physical space, also sort of the social space. Um, mm. There's a psychological aspect to it. There's a spiritual aspect. The phrase communicating God's delight. Okay, that that's tattoo worthy. Uh, maybe a little long, uh, but the message is there. <laughs> if I could communicate God's delight with people mm. and like nothing else, I would have a profoundly important life. Because Absolutely. I mean, isn't isn't that what I want for myself so much? And and is isn't that the problem yeah. when I don't experience it? Mm. Definitely. Um, I think I can possibly explain it better than I do it. Um, but um, <laughs> you know, not this thing is it's just sort of a constant um, you know, my um, yeah. Other people have a personality that's more lends itself to doing all those things I did. I try to do it, but and, and, and I have a good awareness of what, what's needed. I probably don't always do it as well as would be good. But, but that then comes down to it does also help working with others as well. So being part of a team where you will have different sorts of um, contributions to the team. And I, I like collaborative working. I like team working. You know, and I, I know by now I know some of the skills I have. And I know some skills I don't have as much of. But, you know, um, working with other people, you know, it, all together, um, it can happen. That's great. Uh, I, I feel the same way about teams. I've gotten to the point where um, I don't want to do projects by myself because mm. they're so much more fun and they come out so much better with the team. And in fact, I just uh, yeah. learned of an opportunity that's, that I'm very well suited for. And my first thought was, okay, who do I recruit to be part of this with me? Uh, even though I could mm. do it, I could apply for it myself. It's like, I want to do this with others. And so thinking about that coming into play with helping others with issues of purpose and meaning, I, I think... Mm. Uh, is very fruitful. Well, Sally, I wanted to bring you on the show to get your take on bringing spirituality into issues of purpose and meaning. And Mm -hmm. I appreciate your both abstract understanding of it, but also practical approach. And I suppose Mm -hmm. this fits with you having studied practical theology, that you're not, you, you get the big ideas and the the, the ideas floating around in the air, but it's mm-hmm. all about what do you do with the person? Uh, what do you do with the person in front of you? And the wisdom that you've shared is profound. I, th- I think I'm up to uh, maybe my third tattoo now as I look at my notes here <laughs> on uh, what I want to remember from you. And thinking about if onlys, how to prevent them, how shame fits in all of this, uh, creating mm-hmm. spaces. These are the kinds of this is the type of wisdom that most people don't encounter. So thank you for taking the time to come on our show and share it with others. How can people learn more about what you do and, and how can people connect with you? Um, I have a website, which is www.sallynash.co.uk. Um, my email is sally at sallynash.co.uk. If you're on LinkedIn, I'm, I think, Sally Nash. PhD, and I've got several several bits of writing um, or podcasts and other things I've done are on LinkedIn. So if you want to sort of dip into some of the things I've done, I've got several things um, on shame in particular um, on there. And I have an Amazon author page if you want to see what I've written. And I'm on ResearchGate if you want to see what I've um, the academic and stuff that I which is largely around. Pediatric spiritual care and chaplaincy and um, youth ministry 
um, a little bit of shame as well. Wonderful. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us across a rather large ocean to share with us your wisdom on these really important things. Thank you. Thank you so much for reaching out and inviting me. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been a great conversation. I'm, I'm just fascinated by what you do on purpose. That's a really, I've never thought about running sessions on purpose, so that's a really interesting takeaway for me. Wonderful. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple and Spotify. In addition, on Apple, you can leave us up to a five-star review. That would be a great way of supporting the show. If you have questions about finding more purpose in your own life, please don't hesitate to contact us. We'll point you toward resources and people who can help you. Thank you for listening.